God, that, that is our prayer. That's reality. We, we, we're desperate for you, God. We know that you've promised that you're here. We know that you've promised that you'd never leave us or forsake us. And we try and do it on our own so much, God. And we, we just come to you simply right now and ask that you would come in and take over, that you'd take over the service, that you'd speak through me. God, that you'd work in our ears and our hearts in the next few minutes and that you would, you would lead us, you would guide us. You would speak to us. And that as a result, that we might be your people in a fresh way the world might come in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Wow. Good morning. If it is your first time at North Point, a special welcome to you. We're so glad that you're here. Um, we would love to just give you a hug and say welcome. Um, God's going to do some neat stuff. Uh, uh, you're going to have a chance, everybody, to just kind of sign in so that we can stay in touch with you. We would love to be able to do that. And then a chance to give in just a second as well. Um, different feel for the band today, huh? A little bit stripped down. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Jamie, Bruce, uh, Jenny, everybody. Um, I was looking, you know, that drum looks remarkably like a suitcase, uh, I don't know if you noticed that it is a suitcase. Who knew that you could play a suitcase? That's what I want to play in the band, the suitcase. Uh, so anyway, uh, thanks to the band. Um, I, I don't know if you ever did this as a kid or not, but I remember as a young adult when I was hanging around with student ministers, uh, doing uh, student ministry stuff, we played a game called Bigger and Better. Anybody ever played Bigger and Better? Maybe it's an Ohio thing. Um, there's, a, there's this game called Bigger and Better, and what it's about is that you divide into groups. You have these small teams. You can do this with your family, with your friends. Uh, it's a cool thing. You start with some object. And the, the, the game that I remember most clearly, we started with a paper clip. Can you see the paper clip? And what you, the object of the game of Bigger and Better is to go from house to house in a neighborhood and exchange whatever it is that you have for something bigger and better than, than what you're giving them. So you make this trade. So um, at, at this church that we were at, we played bigger and better, divided everybody up into several teams, and um, I went out with this crew. The object was, you know, you go knock at the door. Everybody had a little sliver of this neighborhood so that nobody was um, hitting the same house multiple times. Um, but everybody's divided in, into little different sections in the neighborhood. Knock on the door. Hey, I'm, I'm Rick. You know, I'm from North Point Community Church. Um, we're playing bigger and better. I'd like to trade you this paperclip for anything that you have that's bigger and better than the paperclip. And usually the people at the door would be kind of dumbfounded and say, wait, say that all over again. Now, I want to trade this paperclip for anything you have bigger and better. This, this one time that we played, I remember so clearly, first house. So you're going to give me a paperclip. And I give you something back bigger and better. So yeah, that's, that's it. So they said, you know, I was just paying bills and I've got this pen that's out of ink. 
it's bigger than your paperclip. Can I trade you that? Absolutely. So we trade the paperclip for this pen that doesn't work any longer. Go to the next door, knock on the door. Hey, we're playing bigger and better, blah, blah, blah. Can you, tra what, can you trade me for something bigger and better than this pen that doesn't work? Uh, and they said, you know, we have this awful candle that we've been trying to get rid of. So we trade the pen for the candle. And this goes on for, for a period of time. You set out your time parameters. My particular group, in about two hours, we go through all these homes. And, and one of the rules of bigger and better is that you have to be able to carry whatever it is that you have back to the starting place. My group ended up with a refrigerator. <laughs> so, you know, we've got these six kids that are carrying this refrigerator down the street, and you can just kind of picture that in your mind. We get to the porch, we set the refrigerator on the student minister's porch, um, which was kind of funny in and of itself. Everybody's high five. You know, we, we have won this game. This is incredible. How can you get bigger and better than a refrigerator? And, um, you know, the time's ticking down, and we're thinking we're going to be the only ones that actually make it back on time. And just about that time, from down the street, we see this other team pushing a vehicle, a car, <laughs> down the street to the student minister's house. And they won. They, uh, um, then there was, you know, there was all this discussion about, no, the rules say you have to be able to carry it uh, back. And, the, you know, they didn't carry the car. They pushed it, but they won, the, they won the prize. The interesting thing was that bigger and better game lived on in our memory and in our neighborhood's memory for a long time because it was about four months before the refrigerator left the front porch of, of this particular family. And that car, I don't know if it's still there or not, but uh, the car ultimately was donated. Bigger and better. Uh, th this concept that, you know, when you start with something small, something huge can come out of that. That's where we're going today in today's message. We're talking about one of the miracles of Jesus that's, that's a, an, it, it's a crazy miracle. It's actually one of two miracles that are mentioned in all four of the Gospels. I don't know if you recognize it or not, but when we talk about the Gospels, we're talking about four different biographies of Jesus' life, four different guys who wrote the story of Jesus from their perspective. And they all wrote to a little bit different audience. Um, Luke was a historian, and so when Luke wrote, he, he wrote really from a historical kind of perspective. He devotes a lot to who Jesus was. He tells the story of Jesus' birth in, in Luke 2 in a way that the rest of them don't. John, the Apostle John, he wrote to Christians, to people who had already chosen to follow Jesus. And so John is a very different biography. It describes different things that, that affirm and confirm over and over again that Jesus indeed was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Um, Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience. So uh, throughout the book of Matthew, you'll see things that make sense to Jews that might not make sense to a Gentile population. And Mark, the, the, the book that we're studying right now as we look at life at the lake, was written to a Gentile audience. All four different perspectives. But interestingly enough, there's only two miracles that are mentioned in all four biographies of Jesus. The first, the most obvious, is the resurrection. You know, in every one of the stories of Jesus, the, you can't tell the story of Jesus without the resurrection. Because that's the thing that changes everything. That's the game changer. The fact that Jesus came back from the dead, that he broke the power of death, that's the first. The second is this 
miracle that we're going to talk about today, the feeding of the 5,000. It's, it's a crazy, incredible kind of miracle. I, I don't know how you, how you um, measure miracles. I don't know how you determine it. Because I think, you know what, when you begin to really think about this miracle, it's probably, uh, apart from the resurrection, the greatest demonstration of God's power of any of the rest of the miracles. But then you think, well, wait a second. Raising the, the girl from the dead that we talked about, several, that's a pretty great demonstration of power. Um, walking on water, that's a pretty great demonstration of power. You know, the, um, healing a leper instantly, uh, incredible demonstration of power. Before we jump into the passage of Scripture, let me, let me just um, make a point that I think is helpful for us. When we talk about the miracles of Jesus, it's important to kind of define the word miracle. Um, we use miracle in our culture to describe all kinds of things. You know, when you, when you think about miracle, I think about um, Al Michael and the miracle on ice when the U.S. hockey team beat the Soviets in 1980. You know, we, oh, that was a miracle that the U.S. beat the Soviets back then. We, um, if, you have a, if you have a child or a grandchild, you talk about the miracle of birth. And indeed, that's an incredible thing. We talk about, you know, um, for, for a student, I don't know if we have any, any kids in here, when you pass a test that you didn't study for, it was a miracle, that, that kind of sense. Um, sometimes in our jobs, we say, oh, I got the promotion, it was a miracle, because that guy was, was way more qualified than I was. A miracle is, is not something that can be naturally explained. By definition, a miracle is something that, that um, counteracts the laws of nature. It is, by definition, something supernatural. It's not something that can be explained in any other kind of way except to say, in that instance, the laws of nature were defied, and it was a miracle. Why is that important? It's important because when a miracle happens, when the laws of nature are defied, that gives credibility to something that's going on, and it makes you say, what's the source of that power? In the New Testament, when Jesus did miracles, when, uh, when his apostles did miracles, it gave credibility to their message to say something is dramatically different. God is changing everything, and you need to stand up and take notice. Um, so, so we're, we're going to get the, to the feeding of the 5,000 in just a second, but let me take you from where we were last week at the end of chapter 5 and bring you up to the feeding of the 5,000. At the beginning of chapter 6 of the book of Mark, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If you've got a tablet, you've got your phone, you can kind of spin through stuff, and, and uh, we're going to read a big chunk of Scripture in a second. But if you look in the beginning of Mark chapter 6, Jesus returns. He's doing ministry in Galilee and he returns to his hometown of Nazareth. And, um, and there are some just very interesting verses in there. One is that it says that Jesus could not perform miracles because of the unbelief of the people of Nazareth. These are the people that he grew up with, that remembered him as a little, as a little boy. They were people that had done business with him as a carpenter or a stonemason. Um, they had interacted with Jesus. They knew Mary. They knew Joseph. And so when Jesus came back home, they thought, that's Jesus. He can't be anything more than that. And Jesus couldn't do miracles. He couldn't heal. He couldn't do some of the things, some of the ministry he was doing in other places because of their unbelief. 
In verse 6, if you've got your, if you've got your Bibles, uh, depending upon what, what translation you look at, it says that Jesus was astonished. That Jesus was amazed at what? At their unbelief. Man, that's crazy. When I think about times in my life where I don't believe that God can do what he says he can do. Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. Um, right after that, the beginning in verse 7, Jesus sends out the 12. He sends out the apostles. And he begins to multiply his ministry that he's been doing. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been casting out demons. And now he says, you guys are going to go two by two. You're going to go in, in groups. And you're going to go do what I have done, what you've seen me done. You're commissioned. You're empowered to go do the work of the ministry. And Jesus starts this process of multiplying himself. It's an incredible thing. The disciples go out and they do what Jesus did. They heal. They cast out demons. They teach. Um, and it's an incredible, incredible thing. And then in, in uh, verse 14, it begins to tell the story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. They were related to each other. They grew up together with their families interacting. I think probably John the Baptist and Jesus had a special relationship. Um, John the Baptist recognized when Jesus came to be baptized. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Incredible thing. They had this special relationship. Jesus knew who John was, what he was about, what God had called him to do. John knew who Jesus was, what he was about, and what God had called him to do. And in the middle of chapter 6, you read the story of John the Baptist being beheaded. And on the heels of that, I think, what was the state of Jesus at that point? Jesus wasn't just um, doing life, skipping along, doing what he'd always done. I think that Jesus, um, when we jump into this passage, was probably um, just full of grief because he realized that with John's death, that his death was going to be coming as well. He recognized the writing on the wall that, that the people that they had come to save, the people that God had sent him to save, they rejected John, that Herod was the tool that killed John the Baptist. So in verse 30, um, the account that we're going to study this morning begins. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. They went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. 
was set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that um, Mark was diligent in writing so that we could understand who you are and understand who Jesus is. And that we can make sense of our lives and your love for us because of what he wrote. Um, God, speak to us now. Talk through my words, Lord, and get to people's heads and hearts. Make connections so that your spirit can speak clearly and draw us to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, let's, let's just kind of work through this passage. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus after they'd done all the stuff that Jesus had commissioned them to do and told them what they had done and taught. And he said, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Many were coming and going. They had no leisure even to eat. They went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Understand that the apostles were coming down off a tremendous high. Jesus had empowered them to go and heal and to teach, to cast out demons, and that's what they had done. Think about the magnitude of that. Jesus sends you out, and you do what Jesus did. And think about what the response of that would be. If you had the power to heal, and you healed your friends, you healed the people in your neighborhood, what would happen? All of a sudden, the word would spread, and people would come clamoring to receive that healing. You've got a family member or a friend or somebody in the neighborhood that's just crazy out of their head because of the work that demons are doing on them. You have the ability to cast that demon out. And others who have those same things are saying, man, come save my brother. Come, come take care of my sister, my mom, my dad, my child. And the pressures that came down on the apostles would have been incredible. Their lives would not have been their own because they were doing the work of Jesus. All this stuff going on, they come back. And Jesus says, you know what? You need to get away so that you can rest. They were so busy that they couldn't eat, the scripture says. There's a principle there for us that I, that I think is critical. We talked about it before several weeks ago. The, the Sabbath principle. God designed us. God set a pattern and he worked six days and rested on the seventh. God designed us to need um, to rest and recover, to get away, to shut down and be replenished. That's not acceptable in our culture for most of us. We run 24-7. You know, we go, go, go. And yet there's a principle there for us that says we need to create time to rest and recover. Jesus knows what we need. And he wants to provide it for us. He wants us to experience that rest. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and what? I'll give you rest. We've got to create time in our lives for God to be able to do that. Verse 33, many saw them going and recognized them. They, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. 
How many of you have ever tried to get away, whether it's on vacation or whatever, and you try to get away, and when you do, it almost gets busier than, um, than when you're in your normal routine of life? Most of the time, people come back from vacation, and they say, I need a vacation from my vacation because of all the stuff you had to do before you went, all the stuff you have to do when you come back, all those kinds of things. And then if you create even the right kind of space, you guys who hunt, you go away to hunt. But if your phone's still on, what happens? You know, all of a sudden your phone's going off. Whenever you try and get away. Um, if you have a computer with you, uh, not when you're hunting, but, um, but w- if you have a computer with you, email starts to come in and you think, man, I've got to respond to those things. I don't want to get to the end of my time and have 600 emails that I've got to wade through. Even when we try and get away, there's all these pressures that come in and demand our time. That's what Jesus was facing with the apostles when, when they tried to get away. Understand that the Sea of Galilee, I mentioned this several weeks ago, the Sea of Galilee is about five miles wide and about 12 miles long. It's, it's not one of the Great Lakes, okay? It's not an ocean. It's, it's a relatively small lake in the big scheme of things. Um, the people that lived in that area, they knew who the fishermen were. They would be able to recognize the boats that were out on the sea. They would be able to recognize the sails. They would be able to recognize the movement of the, of the men and women who were on boats so that they could say, oh yeah, that's Jesus and his guys. They've been out there a lot. They're the guys that can heal and can cast out demons and they're going there. We're going there as well. And so all the people on the shore began to gravitate towards this desolate place where Jesus was trying to get away with his, with his disciples. The people beat him there. And when they land on the shore, they're expecting, oh, we can, we can have a meal together. We can kind of disengage and talk back through everything that's happened as the disciples have done what Jesus did. And instead, there's all these people waiting. And what's it say about Jesus? It says that he had compassion on them. We talked about that several weeks ago as well when we talked about Jesus' interaction with the lepers. The scripture says that he had compassion on him. And even in his leprosy, Jesus reached out and touched him in order to heal him. Jesus had compassion on the crowds. He saw their needs and he wanted to respond. I don't know where you are today. But so much of the time, we feel like we're overwhelmed. So much of the time, we're, we've got hurts inside us that we think, I don't know that I can ever get rid of this. Understand that Jesus has compassion on you. He knows what's going on in your heart. And he loves you. He wants to respond. That's what he did in this in, um, in this context, Jesus um, reached out and began to minister to these people. Luke 9 says that, that not only did Jesus teach, as is mentioned in Mark 6, but Luke 9 says that Jesus began to heal the people, the people that had come because they knew the power of God. Jesus responded to them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I don't know about you, but I don't, have a lot of regular interaction with sheep in my life. You know, it may be at a fair I see them. If I end up on somebody's farm, I may see some. 
but I don't, I don't know a lot about sheep, so I need to study to figure out and to understand what sheep are like. Um, uh, here's what I learned, basically. Sheep are stupid. Um, you know, they're just, they're not very smart. If you leave sheep by themselves, sheep without a shepherd, they're going to do one of two things. They're either going to migrate as a flock and just kind of move from place to place a little bit at a time, or they're going to begin to wander and just separate and move away. Sheep on their own will eat grass all the way down to the roots. If sheep stay in one area, um, they're different than most other animals that they'll say, oh, there's better grass over here, not with sheep. Sheep will just keep eating until it's gone completely, until they're mired in, in dirt or mud because they're, they're, they're just not very smart. Um, sheep, uh, if they get, if they run into thistles, that if they, if they um, are injured, they don't have the ability to take care of themselves. They don't have the ability to take thistles out of their wool. So without a shepherd, they're in, they're in real serious trouble. And if a sheep falls over and ends up on its back, it can't turn itself back up and get on its feet. It's kind of like a turtle. Once they're over, they're done, and they'll die in that position. Um, Terry O'Brien, a, a minister in Fort Wayne, Indiana, wrote an interesting thing. He said, um, when Jesus compares us to sheep, he's not exactly giving us a compliment. He's saying that we are helpless, we're stupid, we're stubborn, we're disagreeable. We need constant supervision because a sheep without a shepherd cannot take care of itself. A sheep without a shepherd will die. Understand that Jesus knows what we need and he wants to provide it to us. Jesus wants to care for us. He wants to heal us. He wants to teach us. He wants to protect us, just like a shepherd does with sheep. Verse 35 says, When it grew late, his disciples came and said to him, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. You know, the disciples point this out to Jesus. Um, but I think Jesus knew it. The why did the disciples bring it up? I think it because I, I think that it's because they were spent. They were they were just exhausted. They had done all the ministry stuff, and and Jesus had taken them in the boat so that they could get away, so that they could eat some more, so that they could be refueled. And they turn around, and all of a sudden, they're in the midst of uh, of healing more people, of taking care of more people. And it's not just a little. It goes on for a long time. It goes on all day. It goes on till late in the day. And I think the disciples uh, have just had enough. You ever been there? You've been doing good stuff. And you think, you know what? I've given everything I have. And then you have to give some more. And then you have to give some more. And you think, all right already. You know what? I need some me time. I think that's where the disciples were. And Jesus says to them, they, the disciples say, you know what, send them away, have them go get something to eat, have, just release them. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Why did Jesus say that? I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff that can spin around your mind. John 6 says that Jesus already knew 
what he was going to do. He was setting them up uh, in an incredible way so that they could grasp the power of God, so that they could understand, again, more fully who Jesus was. They said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Um, denarii, you know, we don't use denarii in our culture. Uh, really? That's amazing. I've never heard of that. Denarii was, a, 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 if you've got a little footnote in your Bible, it'll say it's a, a day's wage for a worker. So it's probably, you know, in our culture, in all our time, it's probably somewhere $15, $20 an hour kind of deal, $150 a day. So denarii is worth, let's just say, $150. 200 denarii is not going to feed everybody. $30,000. You have some sense of how large this crowd is and, and what they're thinking about. Now, the crazy thing to me when I began to work through this scripture, I, and, you know, I'm, I'm processing it, thinking, there's 5,000 men. We're going to talk about the numbers in just a little bit. Where are they going to go and buy this stuff? They, you know, if they have the money, and the implication is that they do have the money to be able to do that, where are they going to go and get this? Because all the towns are little. Capernaum's 1,500 maybe maximum. Bethsaida, where they are, is probably less than 500. Um, they're out in the middle of nowhere. Where are you going to go buy food for all these people, even if you have the money? Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Should we go and, and buy all that bread? And Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. The miracle that was going to happen needed the disciples to be involved. They had to take some action in that process. So they began to go through this crowd of people. And what is it that they find? Um, John tells us that they find a boy who's got five barley loaves and a couple of small fish. And so um, Andrew, in this in interaction with his boy, asks for his lunch and brings it back to Jesus. Um, Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said five and two fish. Um, you know, the, the loaves, when, when, when we hear loaf of bread, I, did anybody do this as a kid? Did you go to church and you learn about this miracle with a flannel graph? Yeah, I'm getting blank looks. Does anyone know what a flannel, some of you know what a flannel graph is. Okay, it was this piece of cloth and you had these little figures. Um, when, when I learned this as a kid with a flannel graph deal, the picture that was there were, were of these baskets that were like waist high full of, of bread and fish. But that's, that's actually not the word that's here in this passage. A few chapters later in chapter 8, um, Mark tells the story of Jesus feeding 4,000 with um, seven loaves. Um, and the word for basket there is actually the big baskets that were left over. But in this case, the baskets were actually more like lunchbox size, kind of like a satchel. They were, they, the, the word describes what probably the boy had his lunch in, five loaves and two fishes. The, so um, the, the loaves weren't huge. They weren't like a loaf of bread. They weren't the big, long, like French loaves. They weren't like Wonder Bread cut in slices. They were more like biscuits, kind of like, uh, almost like little pitas that, you know, that it makes sense if you think about it. You've got two pieces of bread, two loaves, with a fish in, in, in between it. You've got a sandwich. You've got another two pieces and another fish. You've got two sandwiches. 
and then you've got an extra piece in case one falls apart or you've got it for dessert. It makes sense that that's what she'd spend with a little boy for his lunch. So that's all they've got, just this little amount of stuff, and they bring it to Jesus. Jesus commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down by hundreds and by fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. When you jump into that picture and you begin to see the crowds of people on the grass, you wonder, why did Jesus break them into groups of 50 and 100? Jesus knew what he was going to do. And think about what would happen with 5,000 men and a whole bunch of other people when they're tired, they've been there all day, they're starving, and all of a sudden that food begins to show itself, it begins to show itself. There would have been a riot as people came to get the food. Jesus sets them down, creates this orderly fashion by which they can be fed in small groups. And he begins to break the loaves and ultimately the fishes. Um, I don't know, you know, study through the, all four accounts and, and try and make sense. I don't know whether the miracle happened in one of two places. I don't know if it happened as Jesus broke the bread, broke the loaves, and the fish. I don't think so because then Jesus would have been breaking it forever all, after he to feed all those people. But he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and maybe the miracle happened as the disciples broke it and set it in front of each of the groups. Or it may be that it happened um, in the baskets themselves as they were passed, as the groups came. And I, I don't know how that happened. But think about that meal that they ate. They were eating barley bread from barley that had never been planted and never grown and never been harvested. It was supernatural bread that had happened there. They were eating fish that had never swam in a river or in a lake. It had never been caught. It had never been seen. They were eating supernatural fish. I'm convinced that out of those five barley loaves, at least one was gluten-free. Because um, otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to eat it, you know? Um, I'm convinced that that fish, for some of those folks, had to taste like filet mignon. Because maybe fish wasn't their favorite. God did something incredible because it says that they ate and were filled. What an incredible thing. Um, you know, when you begin to think about that, Ephesians 3 where it says God can do immeasurable, immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine begins to, begins to make sense. The magnitude of what Jesus did. When we give our all to Jesus, he can multiply it beyond anything that we can imagine. You know, the, 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 the baskets, um, it says at the end that there were 12 basketfuls left over. Um, I, when you jump into that story and, and really begin to process it, to begin to think about it, it's a, it's a pretty incredible thing. Um, those baskets weren't the big ones. They were small kind of satchel things that, you know, you'd 
carry lunch. And it's kind of similar to, you know, the little string backpacks that are everywhere all the time that you can just put a little bit of stuff in the backpacks that look kind of like this. You like? Um. <laughs> um. I think, I don't know this for sure, I'm, I'm just giving you my opinion, but I think that there is a direct correlation between 12 baskets and 12 apostles. I think they were spent, they were ready to send everybody home, and all of a sudden Jesus says, okay, got another job for you to do. You guys divide everybody out into groups of 50 and 100. And they did. And they're thinking, what is going on? We don't have anything to give them. And then Jesus begins to break the, the loaves and the fish and gives it to the apostles to distribute. And if you start breaking down the numbers into groups of 1,500, there's still a lot of groups of people. There's still a lot of work for the apostles to do. And when it's all said and done, there's enough dinner left over for each of the apostles to eat at that point in time. It says, um, you know... I don't, I don't know what it was like, but I'm guessing when the stuff first began to be passed out, everybody's looking around, they know the size of the crowd, and they're doing the, the thing that, I've, that, that Deb and I trained our kids to do. You know, when you're in a big group setting with food, you kind of eye the number of people around and you take a portion according to the number of people. I, we, we taught our kids always, whenever you're in a group setting, you guys go last. Because you know what, if there's not enough, we can go get food afterwards. Let the, let the older people go first. You know, let your cousins go first in family gathering. Let all the adults go first. You guys go last. We'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. I think the first people who took some of that food took a little bit and, you know, tore it off and said, oh, it's great. Um, passed it along. And the next person did the same. And it got down to the end of the row, the end of the 50, and there's still some left over. And people begin to say, can I have a little more? They begin to pass it, and it doesn't go away. And it continues to feed them until they are stuffed. The, the, the word that's there in the Greek, actually, um, it's the word that we would probably translate gorged. They were full with some of the best food that you can imagine, prepared by God's hand. Incredible when you think about it. God's care for us is unbelievable. Those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. 5,000 men. Um, John says, no, I'm, I'm sorry, Matthew 14 says, um, besides women and children. So you've got 5,000 men, maybe 5,000 women. Um, Deb says, we talked about this, she, she said, you know what, you've always got more women than men. Um, so maybe more women than men. And kids, if they, if they were married, had the 2.5 kid thing going on, there's somewhere probably between 15 and 20,000 people, listen, that have come to see Jesus, that Jesus feeds supernaturally. Begin to wrap your brain around how much food that is. And it's interesting that in all of that food, how much is left over? Twelve small baskets, 12 little mini lunches to go around. Deb and I are doing the dessert thing at our house and just having a blast doing the whole thing. But you know what? 
We have 15 people at our house max, 15. And we always have dessert out, the, out of our eyeballs afterwards, always have extra. Jesus planned it perfectly for 15 to 20,000 people. That's incredible. Here's the conclusion. The essence of the message, no matter where you are, no matter what's going on in your life, understand that Jesus loves you incredibly. All the people that came to Jesus, they were coming with all kinds of stuff going on. They were coming because he was a great teacher. They were coming to be healed. They were coming because they were demon-possessed. Jesus knows who you are and loves you incredibly. He wants to heal you. He wants to change your circumstances. He wants you to experience life to the fullest. Jesus had compassion, compassion on the crowd, even though he was grieving, even though he was tired, even though everybody, uh, his closest friends were exhausted. Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus loves you, and he wants whatever it is that you have even though it seems like it's not very much, even though it seems like maybe it's not going to matter at all in the big scheme of things, I tend to think that that little boy, when Andrew talked to him and said, hey, anybody got any food? And this little boy says, here's my lunch. I think Andrew probably said, we want the master needs it. And the little boy was probably incredibly thrilled to think, you know what? I can go out with, I can go without my lunch and Jesus is going to eat my lunch. And instead, 20,000 people ate his lunch by the power of Jesus, including probably Jesus and including the little boy. Whatever we have, whatever we have, when we give it back to God, God can use it in an amazing way to impact everything around us. You know what? Uh, Operation Christmas Child is going on right now. Little becomes much in the hands of Jesus. These boxes that you can fill up, you know what? We've been doing them at North Point for a long time. We've been, uh, lots of people have been doing them. For 10, 15, 25 dollars, whatever it is that you fill this with, um, you have the ability to make an incredible change in the world around you because there's a child somewhere that's going to receive this box. And in their language, Samaritan's Purse is going to put in the story of Jesus in their language, so that they can understand that God came to earth in the form of Jesus. The, the, the gifts that you give, little, little things that can make a huge difference. If you go on Samaritan Purse's website, you can hear the stories of kids around the world whose lives were changed for eternity because they received a shoebox one Christmas. Man, when, when you're doing those, when you're doing them, pray for the child that's going to receive your box. You don't know where, they, where, the, where they're, they're going to be that get it. Pray for them because God can use that little to turn things around. This, ah, I'm dropping cans. A, a Thanksgiving basket. On November 22nd, we've got a chance as a church to to fill Thanksgiving baskets for people in our area that have desperate needs for food. You have the ability to buy them a turkey, to buy them some, 
stuffings and potatoes, you know, those kinds of things, uh, pumpkin pie stuff. And to, and to in that have a chance to show them God's love in a real tangible way. What an incredible thing. Right now, we're going to take up uh, our benevolence offering. It's a special offering. I know we already took up an offering. This is something extra and above. And, and this is what it's going to go for. Over the next several months, um, there's going to be special needs that come up. People that don't have enough money to, uh, to, to pay their rent. People that don't have enough money to pay their utility bills. And because of benevolence offering like this, we, we as a church are going to be able to say, you know what? We want to step in and help. We want to help take care of you. We want to help meet that need in the name of Jesus. Little becomes much in the hands of Jesus. I don't know how that's going to turn out, but you have, you have an opportunity to give in an incredible way right now. Uh, you guys go ahead and, and come on down and just give generously and pray that God would bless it because little becomes much in the hands of Jesus. When you think back to the Old Testament, that principle holds true. Moses had a staff, a stick that he walked around with, a stick that he used to guide his sheep in the wilderness, a stick that he used to threaten animals maybe that, that were predators to protect himself. This is just a piece of wood. And yet, when he was before Pharaoh and threw it down, the stick supernaturally became a snake. The power of God. That staff, when Moses held it up, God used it to part the Red Sea supernaturally so that a nation could walk through the foot. Little becomes much in the hands of God. Think about Joseph. You know what? Joseph had leadership skills when he was young. His dad recognized it. He didn't use them so well with his brothers. When his brothers got mad, they threw him in a pit, tried to kill him. But he had these little leadership skills. He ends up shipped off to Egypt. And those leadership skills, little becomes much, begin to be developed in the house of Potiphar. He ends up being in charge of all Potiphar's house. You, most of you know the story. He, and then ends up in jail. Those leadership skills in jail, no one's aware of. They're hidden away completely. Little becomes much in the hands of Jesus. Ultimately, God pulls Joseph out of the prison and saves the nation of Egypt and the nation of Israel in a seven-year famine at the hand of Joseph. Little becomes much in the hands of Jesus. Peter was just a small-town fisherman. He was a big fish in a small pond. You know, he was a businessman, that kind of deal. But he had some, he had some gifts that he gave to Jesus. And Peter was the one that God used to proclaim the message in the temple on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people responded. God's kingdom began to expand exponentially. And Peter provided much of the leadership by the power of Jesus. Little becomes much in the hands of Jesus. So the question is, what is it that's in your hand? What is it that you hold on to? What is it that God has put in you that you think, yeah, you know, it's just five loaves and 
two plus this. God can't really use that can he? I'm telling you he can if we put it in his hands. I don't know what that is for you. It may be it may be a skill. It may be a gift. It may be some kind of ability. It may be this dream that's in your head that the Holy Spirit put there a long time ago that he's saying, you know what, if you just give that to me, I can make it reality and change the world around you. The challenge for us today is to allow the Holy Spirit to come, to, to look into us, to convict us, to say, what is it that we're holding on to? Um, I talked to Deb in between services, and she said, you know, you've got to know that there were probably some people in those 20,000 that brought their lunch and wouldn't share it. I don't know that that's true, but it's probably real possible. And they missed the power of God. Jesus loves you. He wants to use you to impact the world. He wants you to show his glory. Let's pray. God, I, I know that you're working. I know that you can see things that we can't. Lord, my desire is that you would create reminders and opportunities and follow-throughs and conviction that allow us to give you back what you gave to us originally. God, whether that's, no matter what that is, we just want to place it in your hands at your feet for you to use in whatever way you wish. God, change the world. We want to be a part of that. Draw us to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.